Welcome to the Belltale Rugby Podcast with me, Neve Campbell, me, Jonathan Bradley, and me, Adam McKendry. With expert analysis and special guests, let's kick off. Hello and welcome back to another episode of Belltale Rugby. My name is Neve Campbell and as always I am joined by our Belfast Telegraph rugby correspondent Jonathan Bradley and our sports reporter Adam McKendry. Finally, we saw Ireland sort of get out of second gear and go right up through all of them on Saturday night with an impressive 13-8 win over South Africa. We're going to get right into it straight away, lads. Johnny, kicking off, was beating the Springboks Ireland's greatest World Cup win. It was their greatest World Cup performance. I'm going to say that Australia was still a bigger win in the sense of what that should have meant for the tournament. Like, it's very easy to look back on the Australia win in hindsight and say, oh, they lost the quarterfinal anyway. But, like, that was a massive thing because it put Ireland into a quarterfinal that they should have won. And it really changed the entire mood around that World Cup and what that Ireland team could do at that World Cup. Now, yes, they did then go on to get beat by Wales in the quarterfinal. (laughs) But that's speaking with the benefit of hindsight, hindsight that we don't have with regards to the South Africa game. But I think it's too easy to forget um, the real buzz that was created by that Australia Australia victory. It could just be nostalgia on my part because I wasn't working and was still a student at that time. <laughs> you don't have <laughs> so, to really focus on every single yeah, aspect of the game. Was, maybe it was just much more crack in my in my mind. It's hard to say. Danny's just remembering those halcyon days in the bar where, you know... Enjo- Bre- breakfast beers for the 2011 World Cup. Hard to beat. Enjoying the game, not having to worry about writing a 850-word comment yeah. piece. Cheap drinks. Fi- filing, <laughs> filing ratings when you don't know who's won the game. <laughs> <laughs> what did you think, Adam? Um, do I think it's their biggest ever World Cup win? Thus far. Thus far. Um, Thus I mean, far. it's Neves uh, teasing a quarterfinal win. <laughs> yeah, exactly. Uh, we, we are a very optimistic podcast now compared to our pessimistic days of the past. Um, the Ulster season's still a month away. <laughs> <laughs> uh, I'm, I'm going to agree with Johnny. I, I do think that Australia was a pretty big win back then and it did sort of represent something a little bit more than what this one did because you have to bear in mind that Ireland came into this South Africa game in a slightly different position to where they've sort of ever been before in a, going into that magnitude of a World Cup game as world number ones and at the very least on a par with South Africa if not slight favourites. So it's not even a case of it, were Ireland sort of like unexpected to win this game. Well, I, th- I think everyone sort of expected that they had a very good chance to win this game. And so it proved. So from a performance perspective, yes, I would probably say that's their best World Cup performance. Is it their biggest win? Probably not. I mean, I think what this does do is it's their biggest win in terms of like how it can set up the tournament for them moving forward, provided there's no mistakes against Scotland they have now set up a quarterfinal with New Zealand instead of France which I think is the better draw if you look at the draw you know you're also getting on the side of the draw that has Wales Argentina I think as it's uh, as it's projected at the moment I don't think that's been spoken about enough yeah you know like the fact that if you win the quarterfinal a semi-final is looking like it's going to be against Wales or Argentina like that's 
huge. You know, if if you're on the other side of the draw, like even if you win your quarterfinal and you beat France, well, it's going to be uh, England or Fiji. England or Fiji. Now, that's also a fairly easy draw right now, but England have just suddenly got themselves into this weird knack of winning games no matter what. You know, they... All right, Argentina were very poor whenever they played them, but England did a decent job on them. Uh, And they're just sort of going about their business. They've got Farrell back, so they could just be, you know, potentially sticky opponents in that they they can just bore you to death almost. You know, they might actually just bore you into letting them score a few points. I suppose you need to know whether Wales are the team that beat Australia or whether they're the team that scraped a bonus point against Portugal. I think Australia are rubbish, so I don't think there are any fair shakes at the moment. I'm not, so, uh, Wales are the, the toughest team to read at this World Cup so far, I think, because obviously they're the, the first team in the quarterfinals. Uh, but it, like, is Gatland getting a song out of them or did they... Because they played better against Fiji than we gave them credit for. Yeah, but they because, also nearly blew it at the well, end against sh- Fiji. Yeah, I think they should have lost that Fiji game, but they also played better than I thought that they were going to play, if you if you follow me, because I mm. thought that they were going to get beat by Fiji, and I still think that they would have done if not for the refereeing, but it was a better Wales performance than I thought we were going to get. The Portugal performance was laboured, mm-hmm. and then the Australia game is one of those where it's very hard to know whether you're watching a good performance or whether you're watching a team playing a terrible, terrible opposition, mm. so... Hard to say. But the, to get back to Ireland, I think that... <laughs> Not to look at something. We, yeah, we are yeah, going to get into yeah. Australia later on, yeah. don't worry. <laughs> but to, to get back to Ireland, I do think this was probably one of their best World Cup performances. And you know, if they weren't confident before, which they should have been, but if they weren't confident enough before to beat South Africa in the manner that they did, like bear in mind that there was all this talk about the bomb squad and how... South Africa were going to unleash these seven forwards off the bench in the second half and they would essentially just bulldoze Ireland and walk away with it. Whenever Australia or sorry, whenever South Africa started bringing on their bench, they were actually ahead. Like they had just pulled ahead and you sort of thought, well, this is the tide. You know, you see these monsters coming on off the bench and it's just going to suck all the life out of Ireland. But Ireland's bench was arguably better and that was what turned the tide back in their favour. So Inarguably better. Yeah. Like, Definitively better. So, you know, I, if there's anything that is positive to take from this game, it's all in Ireland's favour, which is that you negated the bomb squad, you've beaten the defending world champions, you've set up a quarterfinal against New Zealand, provided they don't mess it up against Scotland. Like arguably this tournament could not have gone better for Ireland right now. They have no significant injuries. They've got the path through the knockouts that they want. They've beaten the defending world champions. Like Everything just seems to be lining up nicely for Ireland. And <laughs> you know rightly that this is going to come before a fall somewhere, but you know, right now, everything is just lining up so nicely for Ireland at this World Cup. You were trying to be so optimistic there, Adam, and you put in a well, so, bit of pessimism there. You know, I mean, if, if you look back at the winners of World Cups in the past, there are so few, I, like, I can't think off the top of my mind, a team that has gone through a World Cup where everything just kind of fell into place for them. There's always something that a team has to go through, whether it's a big injury on their way to winning it, or whether it's a loss in the pool stages and then going on to win it, or 
some kind of adversity, Ireland really haven't had to face a whole lot of adversity yet, be it through injuries or a rough refereeing decision or a loss. They they haven't quite had to deal with that yet. And I I'm not they showed sure. real resilience though in that first quarter because the win, I th- the foundations of the win were set by surviving that first quarter when your line out goes to um, when your line out's not very good and then South Africa are winning the collisions. You know, we all saw this dominant tackle stat, 30, you know, 31 dominant tackles. And even what you mentioned there about losing, or sorry, being in a losing position when South Africa broke on the bench. Like, I think there was an awful lot of resilience in that victory, even though it is, it's not what you're saying of, you know, an egregious refereeing decision or, you know, what all these other teams have had of like massive injuries. Because, you know, that part, that part of what you're saying is 100% right. Like, Ireland are blessed to be going into their third game at the World Cup with what is essentially their first choice 23 minus Kane Healy. And I suppose you could you would make the argument minus Jack Conan. So, like, you know, they've got 21 of their first choice 23 available, which is just nuts at this stage of a World Cup. Um, but I do think they've shown resilience of a different kind and I think that's what they're going to need to win the World Cup As we are Belltail Rugby we have to focus a bit on Ulster skipper Ian Henderson who had a great impact on the game obviously how would we rate Henry's performance to get to get into it Adam? Uh, he was part of that bench that came on and turned the tide in Ireland's favour uh, as we were saying there you know whenever you look at how the line out creaked in the first half I think it was six they lost on their own throw or something around about there um, and really whenever you're facing a team like the Springboks you need all your basics to be going well it was Henderson coming on uh, alongside Shane that really shored things up and just having that veteran presence in the second row not enough that James Ryan and Tag Burner, two very veteran uh, operators as well, but just having somebody like Hendo come on who runs the line out in Ulster, he's been there and done it, you know, at, at international level for so many years, just add that calm into the line out, that really helped. And, you know, also going into the scrum too. And I think what I, I always think whenever I see Ian Henderson, he always seems to have that little bit more of a an abrasiveness whenever he's carrying and I think that's whenever he's with Ireland as opposed to Ulster and I think that's down to the fact that Ireland have more guys who can take the load off him in terms of carrying so he's not being asked to carry every two phases he's being asked to carry every four or whatever it is and um, he, he just seems to have that little bit more of an edge but you know whenever you're coming on off the bench and I think it's notable that whenever Henderson's been asked in press conferences, he said, you know, I, of course I want to be starting, but I'm happy to play any any role that Faz asked me to. And that shows great maturity. So for him to be able to be coming off the bench and be adding that impetus, to be adding that real energy and fire to lead Ireland to a win in a game where it did look like things were going to be stacked against them in terms of South Africa bringing on their pack uh, in the second half, all seven of them, and you know the fact that they'd just taken the lead. For him to come on and essentially him and Sheehan being the catalyst for Ireland to start their comeback, I think that's a great feather in, in his cap. And unfortunately, it probably means it's going to keep him on the bench for another game because... Andy Farrell will look at that and go, well, there's the guy who added so much energy for us whenever we needed it. Yeah, but equally, 
I I think he will be very, very happy with the work that he got through. There's an important leadership element to it as well, I think, um, because, you know, Sexton came off, O'Mahony came off, James Ryan came off. So we see Sexton, or we see Henderson captaining the team in the end. But whether you're captain or not, you know, that leadership piece of it, I think, is huge in those tight games. And, you know, I haven't had an awful lot of them of late that have come down to that sort of final quarter or... I suppose, games against other really, really top teams that have come down to the final quarter. Um, But I think that's a huge part of it as well because as much as you can sort of look at the, you know, the rock arrivals and things like that and you can see those on a stat sheet and see how busy he was, the more intangible element of it, of just being, you know, a two-time Lion in his third World Cup, I think to be able to bring that calmness off the bench and, you know, you saw him bring everyone together and... um, really, you know, we don't know what he was saying, but it seemed like he was saying it fairly forcefully anyway. Um, so I think that's a huge part of what uh, of what Henderson can bring in really leading that second unit as just such a massively, massively experienced player. Johnny, you've written in your column for Belfast Telegraph this week that the Springboks shot themselves in the foot with their team selection. We talked about that seven-man bomb squad a wee bit and you think they'll learn from their mistakes. So I suppose then, how do you think the two sides would fare now if they end up meeting in the final? Well, like we have talked about at length South Africa coming into this tournament, not having a recognised goal kicker and then after Malcolm Marks' injury, we talked about them not having a recognised replacement hooker. And if you look at where that game got away from them, like they leave plenty of points behind off the tee. They give away a penalty on their own scrum, which Jack Carley knocks over for three points. They turn over a line out and they give away a free kick in the scrum that allows Ireland to exit. These are all things that happened after Mbanambi went off and Dean Forey come on. So, like, Dean Forey's a great player, like, as a bag rower, but he's, on the evidence of what we've seen on Saturday, he's not going to be able to play as a hooker against the number one team in the world. I would like to retract my statement from a podcast previous that Dion Furry is capable of playing hooker. <laughs> <laughs> so, you know, those are three massive swings in momentum that happened after he came on, on top of the huge swings in momentum caused by missed kicks. So I just don't think there's any chance that South Africa do that in a World Cup final if these two sides meet there again. So it's not to go in for some sort of typically... Irish begrudgery of, oh dear, I don't know, maybe we should have lost that one. Could have been, it could have been better for us in the long run. But like, there's no way that South Africa make those mistakes again. I, I don't even know, and we never will know, if Razi Erasmus would have put that team out if it was a must-win game. But regardless, it would be a different team in a rematch. I, I am incredibly interested to see if they would go 7-1 split on the bench again if we got to the final. like, And personally, I, I don't think it will be an Ireland-South Africa final. I think if if Ireland make the final, which I do think they will, I think it will be against France. But if we got to a final, would they put a 7-1 split on the bench again, knowing that it didn't work in this game? Do they think that that is down to their 7-1 split? Did they try the 7-1 split as a sort of smokescreen? And just to kind of go, 
let's see how it goes, knowing that it wasn't necessarily a must-win game for them. Or do they think that the 7-1 split could work a second time round? It's, there's there's so many... In fact, part of me really does want an Ireland-South Africa final to like see this again, you know, how do both teams approach the game differently next time? Like, do South Africa put Andre Pollard on the bench so that they have a second 10 option, a kicking option, whenever their guys on the pitch are not able to kick their goals? Why would which... they not start him? Why would they not start him ahead of Manny Libok? Like, having a goal kicker, it's not having a goal kicker to come on at the end. Like, penalties in the first 10 minutes count for just as many points as penalties in the last 10 minutes you know it's I think it's harsh on Libok in general it's harsh in the performances that he's given outside of this key area but having a goal kicker in your test side is an imperative and they don't have one right now but Ulster know more than anyone <laughs> that Manny Libok is capable of kicking clutch made kicks. one kick in his leg and it was <laughs> from the touchline in the 85th minute to knock Ulster but out he, of the URC is he not, I'm, I'm going to look up the stats here but I'm pretty sure Libok was close to the top of the kicking charts in the URC last season like he, he's not an incapable 10 of kicking goals like he, he is a goal kicker for the Stormers. It's it's not like he's being asked to kick goals just because he's playing 10 for the Springboks. He, he does kick for his club and he has kicked for the Springboks in the past. You know, I, I, I understand that, you know, you don't put a guy on the bench just for his goal kicking because you trust the guys that you've started with your goal kicking. But whenever you only have one back on the bench, if your guy on the pitch is having a bad day goal kicking, well, you, you've you backed yourself into that corner. You know, all right, you're not putting Pollard on the bench specifically to bring him on for goal kicking. But if Libok is having a, a rubbish day off the tee, you've hamstrung yourself by only putting Reinach on the bench and you don't even have an option to go Manny, it's not your day off the tee. You're having a good day in the, in open play, but we need to bring Andre on. We need to bring someone who's going to kick our points because it's a tight game. I don't think he has enough days where it is his day from the kicking tee, to be honest. Like, you know, Ulster as an example. Like, Libic would be fine for Ulster because he wouldn't have to kick because John Cooney kicks. But unfortunately, if you don't have another frontline kicker, whether it be, you know, whether it be your fullback, whether it be your centre, whether it be your scrum half, whatever, the axe is going to swing on the 10. Like, I'm not saying it makes him a bad player. You know, it wouldn't be a discussion to be had if um, South Africa had a reliable goal kicker anywhere else in their back line. But I just think he's going to be the one to carry the can. And I think if they can get Andre Pollard up to match finish, bear in mind that he's only played half an hour for Leicester in a Premiership Cup game. But this is the guy that won them the World Cup four years ago you know I I don't mean to bring stats into this but I'm bringing stats into this um, the Stormers ranked first in King from the T last U- season in the URC U- URC doesn't mean anything when you get the <laughs> World Cup not the same well, looking back at Ireland right uh, they're going to face Scotland next how many changes if any to their starting 15 would you make for Scotland and what would those changes be Johnny I would freshen things up a touch. A wee touch. Just a wee touch. (laughs) Just a smidge. Which is what all the other teams have been, apart from Mm. obviously South Africa was full bore, but like, you know, Romania was two changes, 
from what we think is the first choice 15 in the sense that Hansen and Van der Flyer were both on the bench. Tonga, Jameson Gibson Park didn't play. So I would say two or three. Sheehan, I think, has to start. I think if Conan is fit to start, then you have to get him in there and you probably want to give Doris a bit of a breather anyway because as the only recognised number eight, I understand that Tyg Byrne has actually been the one that's played more minutes, but as the recognised number eight, Keelan Doris has had a fairly high workload through this period. So I would start Conan, assuming he's fit. If he's not fit by this stage, then you really have to wonder why you were bringing him. Um, I'd probably consider throwing Henderson in there. Henderson hasn't actually had a start yeah, in no, this tournament yeah, yet, yeah. which so, you'd probably like to give him in the off chance that you need him to start a knockout game. Yeah, exactly. And then the other... Did I say Shane? You did, yes. Um, so like, I'm already up to three, but I would... Because Bondiaki has been so good, I do wonder if he is the one that you think maybe he's the player that gets the gets the rest in that game, which would obviously be good content-wise for us because it would raise the possibility of Stuart McCluskey getting to play at this <laughs> World Cup. I mean, the, the biggest question, obviously, is how many guys can you rest up ahead of the knockouts whenever you've got this rest week coming up now and still keep them ready and raring to go for the knockouts you know if you make too many changes are you disrupting the flow of the team given that you have a week off now if you don't make enough changes are you flogging the guys having played four pool games so that that's the big question you know like there's, there's going to naturally be a question over do you play johnny sexton again because you know it's going to be four games in a row uh, personally i think you do play him i but think you have to because yeah, yeah. i think it's no knock on crowley but i think the all the players that we're talking about bringing in, whether it be Henshaw, whether it be Henderson, Conan, Sheehan, like those guys are all relatively experienced mm. to very experienced players. Whereas Crowley, you know, there's a there's a drop to Crowley in terms of experience that's probably too large, I think whenever you're looking at this is still a game that Ireland will need something from it's most mm. likely going to be that they just need a losing bonus point from it I think um, if my maths is correct <laughs> but I don't think that you make changes that weaken your team and that's nothing against Carly because I think he's actually been really good he obviously was on the pitch to see out that South Africa win um, but I think the drop-off, whether it be the mental drop-off across the board or whether it just be that experience element or just how important sex is, I think it's too too big a drop from the starter to the replacement to do that in a mm. game that you still need something from. Oh, look, no, I, I completely agree. I'm just saying naturally, as always happens, anytime Johnny Sexton could ever potentially get a rest, the question will be asked, should we rest Johnny Sexton? I agree with you. I, th I think the answer is no. And I think, I actually think, p particularly in Sexton's case, I think the rest week comes at a particularly good time for him. And that, you know, you've just played your biggest game 
against South Africa of, of the pool stages, you get a rest and then he's ready to go again for Scotland the week after. So it's not like you're asking him to play big games. Not that Sexton can't, but you know, like you're not asking him to play big games back to back. You're now running into Scotland, then straight into the knockouts from there. Um, yeah, I, I, I'm I'm sort of in, in the same boat as Johnny. You do you don't want to see sweeping changes, but I think you need to see a, a few changes just to see some guys taking over. Let's get Stuart McCluskey in that twelve jersey. He's got to play. You are the Stuart McCluskey fan club from from last season. I really am. Over. Yeah. So he, look, I, on on one on one hand, like you know, I, I've said this in past podcasts. Nobody has any divine right to play in a World Cup. Just because you go to a World Cup, it doesn't mean you have to play in it. But I do think. McCluskey has been good enough for Ireland and Ulster over the past 12 months in particular, but even beyond that, that I think it would be very cruel for him to go to a World Cup and not play. I I would like to see him at least get minutes off the bench or something like that, Mm -hmm. because I do think his performances over the past at least 12 months have deserved it. Mm Elsewhere in the World Cup, Wales humiliated Australia to move into the quarterfinals. The score on Sunday finished at 46, leaving Eddie Jones' team close to pool stage elimination. And Johnny, you were also writing in the paper this week about how Jones' return as Australia boss has been a disaster and also a distraction for them. So the question is, will he still be in charge or, or should he still be in charge, I suppose, of Australia at the end of this calendar year? I don't think that he will be. I think the... Writing looks on the wall with the story in the Sydney Morning Herald in the weekend that he's allegedly, shall we say, already had. I don't doubt the story, but um, obviously Eddie Jones has been at pains not to confirm or deny it, which is seems odd, an odd thing to do if it was a wrong story. But um, the story on Saturday that he's already in due to take over the Japan job, uh, which is who's incredible. Still, who's still doing Zoom calls these days? Well, <laughs> that's it, yeah. Um, eight, months, eight months in. And it seems like he's looking out the door already. I suppose the more overarching question is, will Australia be sad to see him go if that's the case? Because we're looking down the track here, but Australia are very important to rugby's two biggest cash cows in the next four years, which is the Lions Tour and the next World Cup, both of which will be in Australia. Like We talked about them needing to get a team together for those challenges that lay ahead. But, like, I have to be honest, I did not see them being this bad. Like, I really thought that there were going to be teething problems with what's a young group. And I didn't think they'd make a huge impact on this tournament, but I thought that they were going to get get through this pool, Um, especially after they looked relatively cohesive at points, even in defeat during the rugby championship. Like, they, they weren't that bad in the rugby championship. And then, obviously, we didn't know. We probably expected more of Georgia than what we've got at this World Cup, given that their draw with um, with Portugal. But when Australia beat, um, whenever Australia beat Georgia so handily, I would not have predicted at all that Australia would look so bad against both Fiji and Wales, even worse against Wales. So, like, if you're Australia, are you not sort of looking at this being like, yeah, we may have got this one wrong. If you want to... Uh, break your lengthy contract to go and take a job at Japan. We're not going to stop you. Like it's, I know that obviously everybody's very Ireland focused and everybody wants to talk about Ireland and France and South Africa and New Zealand and the teams that might win this World Cup. But like the biggest story of the first three weeks is how utterly, utterly rudderless Australia have looked. Uh, I mean, whenever they beat 
Georgia, as you say, and it was fairly handy. There were no questions because people kind of thought it was the same as, not not to the same extent as Ireland. You know, Ireland obviously started their tournament with a massive win over Romania, but against better opposition, Australia just had solid win, started the tournament nicely, and they thought, okay, you're going to ease your way in. And it's just fallen so completely flat. I mean, for all the bluster that Eddie Jones said in the build-up to the game, like being so strong-willed in what he was saying, and we know that's Eddie Jones, you know, we know he says that all the time, but whenever you say stuff like that, you have to back it up. And to go out and get hammered by 34 points by Wales, a team, you know, knowing that essentially your qualification is on the line here, to go out and play that badly really reflects on just how rotten things must be. And Australia are probably looking at that Georgia job with Portugal and saying, well, jeepers, it's it's lucky that, uh, that that happened. Otherwise, you know, we could be in risk of not even finishing third in a group of essentially what was just three teams going for the knockouts. So... Um, would have got away without like, the qualifying though given that they're hosting the next one that would well, have been I, the only silver line I, I was going to say I, I don't I, I assume that the hosts automatically qualified but I, was, I wasn't sure if the wouldn't be like a, an Ireland job when they had to go to Russia to qualify <laughs> so but you know this this Australia team just I think Johnny used the perfect word they look rudderless you is, know. is that what the issue know. is that it's just like it's not down to team selection or them genuinely being poor they just don't seem like they're they have the will they don't know what they don't look like they know what they're doing no like look look at that look at the game against Wales on Sunday like they were getting so many just basic things wrong you know it it wasn't even that they had the wrong game plan it wasn't that they had the well sorry they, they probably did have the wrong game plan as well but it was just there were so many basic basic errors that they were never just able to get any cohesion going and that's a killer whenever you play in a tournament like the World Cup whenever you're constantly coming up against the best that the world have to offer you just can't be making these simple simple errors it's you know, it's it's rugby one who won that they're just not getting right. But if you don't bring Quaid Cooper to the World Cup because you're saying Carter Gordon's our guy and you get a game and a half into the World Cup and then you decide, oh no, Carter Gordon's not our guy. So you drop Carter Gordon for the biggest game in the World Cup having already jettisoned Quaid Cooper and like Quaid Cooper has his flaws as a 10. We all know that, but like, if you're going to pick a guy and back a guy, then you can't reverse course after a game and a half, especially when you didn't even bring the most natural replacement. I mean, they didn't bring a veteran 10 even just to back their young 10. You know, you don't have anybody in that squad who's like, you needed someone even like Quake Cooper to be there just to sort of pull Carter Gordon aside and say something, you know, like, well, you know, all right, you didn't have the best game there, but look, we, we go again. You know, I've been in this situation before. You're just throwing this guy in at the deep end and you're saying, you're our guy, but if you flop... I, I imagine he wasn't telling him that if you flop, we're going to we're gonna hook you and we're going to play someone else. But, you know, you back your guy and then you pull him after two games. Like, that's a killer to confidence and that's surely seen around the rest of the squad. You know, if you have so publicly backed... Carter Gordon to be your guy and that's something that you must be reiterating within the locker room as well and then you reverse course on that like what sort of message does that send to the rest of the players you know well he's told me I'm his guy but 
what if what if I'm just pulled in after the next game because I didn't play all that great you know if if you're gonna make such public declarations and you're gonna make it so clear that this is the direction you're going in stick to it mm-hmm. you know don't don't give out these mixed signals of I'm going to do this but then I'm going to do that and especially like this is what I've actually liked about what England have done with Steve Borthwick I'm sure they didn't want this to become public and credit to Gavin Mares for getting this story which is that you know England are going to back Borthwick beyond the World Cup because they know it's a rebuilding process for them. They know that this World Cup does not define them in the same way that Australia aren't, were never going to win this World Cup. They're definitely not going to win it now, but they were never going to win this World Cup. And you're talking about a very important period, as Johnny said, where you're coming up against the Lions in two years. You're coming up against uh, the best of the world on your home turf in 2027 at the World Cup. So you need to be focusing on those two things. So I don't think Jones was actually wrong for going with a young squad. I think there are a couple of changes that I would have made, such as putting Cooper in that squad to be a mentor for Carter Gordon. But you know, getting this young squad together and saying, this is our panel going forward. We'll see what they can do at the World Cup. But look, realistically, we know that we're not beating Ireland. We're not beating South Africa. We're not beating New Zealand. They haven't proved that the last few years. And if they did something at this World Cup, great. You know, say that this is what you're doing. Say that this is a young squad, but look, we're building for big things. You know, the Lions Tour, judge us on the Lions Tour as sort of our halfway point of our progression and hopefully, you know, a bit further. And then the 2027 World Cup on home soil. We want to win that World Cup. We want to win on home soil. This is the World Cup that we want to win. And instead, you're getting all these mixed signals of Carter Gordon's our guy, but he's actually not our guy. And we've got a young squad, but we're we're gonna win this this World Cup. Oh, but we've got a young squad that's still learning and stuff like that. You you gotta pick a lane and stick to it here. Otherwise, you're sending out mixed messages. Whereas England have made a very very clear declaration of Steve Borthwick's our guy. We trust him. We trust what he's doing. All right, it's maybe not going to be smooth sailing in every game. We're playing some pretty boring rugby right now, but we trust him. We back him. He's going to be our guy. Mm-hmm. That, to me, is a better way of doing things. Well, finally, we're going to take a wee look at Ulster, obviously, because, again, we're the Belltail Rugby Podcast, and we still have the elongated pre-season due to the World Cup, but Dan Soper has revealed that the Ulster side have been focused upon getting back to sharper attacking play that so characterised their best showings in preceding seasons, and he's been talking about the new artificial pitch, Johnny, that's caused so much controversy. Yeah, I... Like he was, he was asked a lot about the artificial pitch in like the live section of the presser. So like, just I suppose for background for people that don't know, like there's a live section of the presser that tends to be for TV and radio, and then a written section of the press conference, which is for us um, to do slightly longer pieces for the for the papers and the websites and stuff. So the he had been asked about it before, but then brought it up unprompted really in terms of the piece that we had in today's paper Tuesday's Tuesday's paper (laughs) and uh, on our website about the move to play or getting back to playing more attacking rugby because I'd asked them the question I suppose about what they had been working on what lessons they learned from last season and then as a follow up whenever he'd spoken about how they got away from what had served them well in the years before um, just by 
over relying on their power game, like how it was that they came to get away from that when it had produced such promising rugby the year before. You know, you think about the Northampton game and the Munster game the year before. I know we talked about it a lot, but the pitch was then mentioned in answer to these questions as a well, you know, we'll have this faster playing surface, so it's going to suit us as much as I suppose it'll suit the players that we have that that um, that Ulster have. So. Yeah, the pitch was definitely on the agenda, whether it, whether it was in the questions or whether it was in answers that weren't about the pitch. Um, I think it is definitely something that we're going to see an awful lot of, isn't this great? Um, look at our shiny new pitch mm. over the next couple of weeks. It actually looks, I've been in Ravenhill for the presser and then a week before for to interview Will Addison. And it l- looks surprisingly ready. I mean, it looks good to go. Obviously, it's not going to be in use until the Bulls game, which is the 29th of October. But, I mean, it looks ready. Uh, but I thought, really, aside from the pitch, because the pitch, all the mentions of the pitch that we're going to get are essentially, I mean, that's, I'm not knocking Ulster for doing it. Obviously, they have to do it. But, I mean, that's essentially PR. The interesting part of the answers to me was the fact that they are aware that they got this, what Dan Soper called, tunnel vision in terms of their attack last year and they're trying to work away from that of still using the power game because it's effective but using the space that it creates for what is a talented backline that just didn't get enough ball last year. What do you think then as well? I don't know what the weather was actually. I just know the weather was torrential on Sunday but uh they played a match, a friendly against Leinster on Friday. It didn't go that well. <laughs> well, I will say this. Now, this is not anything that Ulster have said publicly, obviously, but like these friendlies are not, the friendlies that are played so far were not on their original schedule. Like these are friendlies that have been put into the schedule essentially. This one was. But they are essentially for. Ireland's benefit to get the players on standby, whether officially or unofficially on standby. Game time. Yeah. So Ulster's preseason preparations in the offset, which is always playing two games, one home, one away, were Benetton and Glasgow. So like these are extra games. So I wouldn't say that there's a huge amount of emphasis being placed on the results in them even more so than normal preseason friendlies. Uh, there were probably a few interesting elements of the game in terms of, I mean, Mike Laurie played in the wing. Um be interesting to see if that's something that they're thinking about. I um, suppose with Will Allison coming back, you want yeah. to try and get your best players on the pitch. Yeah, that's and a good it point. depends where they see, you know. But what I find interesting, though, is that Addison has played on the wing. Lowry has not. But it's interesting that Lowry seems to be the one. No, I, I don't know if this is in any relation to Will Addison being back, but I find it interesting that Lowry is suddenly playing wing whenever he's only ever played fly half and fullback, and it coincides with Will Addison being back and available. Yeah, I mean, a lot of the back line missed time last year through injury. So I suppose having that positional versatility is good. I suppose in, we should note that in terms of positional versatility Nick Timoney getting a run at hooker is um, 
I don't think anybody had that on their preseason bingo card, but... David Nussifor's hands all over that. <laughs> uh, it, do, it does make sense, because if James McCormick is injured and Ireland get an injury at the World Cup, then Tom Stewart's going to the World Cup, and then all of a sudden you've got John Andrews. So it does make sense, mm. I suppose, that they would need what would be a fifth-choice hooker. Mm-hmm. And apparently we've learned it's Nick Timoney, so... Yeah. Like I, I always say never read too much into preseason. Like there are teams that'll win every preseason game and finish eleventh in the table. There are teams that will win no games in preseason and finish second, you know. The what's more important to coaches about preseason is trying things and seeing how they work in game situations. You know, you can practice something for eight weeks of preseason training and then come into a game and you suddenly discover that it just doesn't work in a game scenario. And that's that's how it is. Now, I will admit, shipping 38 points is maybe a little bit concerning, given that Leinster were missing a lot of first-teamers, and defence tends to be something that is just uniform across the board. You know, you don't, um, you don't really need anything sort of overly specific to combat against certain plays or anything like that. You just need to have a solid defense. So I suppose that's maybe something that's a little bit concerning. But in terms of the result, I don't think anybody at uh, at Ravenhill is going to be losing too much sleep over the result. It's whenever the games actually start becoming competitive that they'll start to worry about results and things like that. But it's just a chance to get guys a run out. It's a chance to see where things work. Try Mike Lowry at on the wing trying Nick Timoney at hooker we might see someone else at hooker so there's more options if they if they potentially need them so I'm I wouldn't be reading too much into the result it's it would be more whenever the the games actually start that I think there would be more concern if the sort of results continued in this fashion taking those positive optimistic vibes forward there Adam (laughs) I mean look this could come back to bite me because you know, Ulster could start the season with five straight losses and all of a sudden we're like, well, they didn't win a preseason game, so that's obviously yeah, carried, carried on through. You know, guys do want to win preseason games. You know, it's not like they're coming away going, well, we don't care at all. You know, you, winning is a habit. You want to put wins on the board and you want to have that feel good feeling around the dressing room whenever you come back in. It's like, yeah, you've got the high of a high of a win. But ultimately, you know, any team would trade every preseason game being lost for a trophy at the end of the season so it's it's more about you know looking at things you know does this defensive setup work for us no it doesn't we go back to the drawing board we look at defensive setup b does this attacking play work well yeah it did you know we tried it three times in the game and we scored two tries off it so you know that's something that we're going to put in our arsenal for the rest of the season it's it's more about that than sort of trial and error kind of thing seeing how different combinations work you know does this scrum half click with this fly half well do these centers work together well that we haven't tried before it's it really is just trying a lot of different things so i'm personally i wouldn't be looking at preseason results and thinking to myself well that's an indicator of how the season's gonna go well We'll keep everyone posted on those Ulster friendlies as we know about them. And we do, as we say, we've got a rest week this week for Ireland in the World Cup. They're back on next Saturday, October the 7th versus Scotland at 8pm Irish time in Irish and UK time in Paris. We will be back next week doing a bit more of an in-depth preview on that as well. Uh, To catch up on all other rugby news, you can pick up a Belfast Telegraph newspaper or go on to belfasttelegraph.co.uk. And until next week, see you then.